Welcome to the Inspirational Living Podcast, brought to you in part by Book of Zen, makers of inspirational fashion and gift ideas. Visit them online at bookofzen.com. Today's podcast has been edited and adapted from a book of essays by Stephen Paget, published in 1911. This much I remember of Aristotle, that he calls wonder the beginning of the love of wisdom. To have a right judgment of our surroundings, we must wonder at them and be surprised that they and we are met together. So long as we exercise this quickening sense of wonder, there is hope for us and some justification of our presence here on earth because we all are on the road that leads toward wisdom, and they alone are incorrigible fools to whom nature comes natural. Once we have fallen into the bad habit of taking for granted what nature gives us, and have ceased to be amazed, it may be fairly said that in the midst of life we are in death. For one might as well be dead as alive, to look with dull eyes at the world, not finding it wonderful. So excellent is wonder that we must not profane its name in common use. For example, there is the phrase, I wonder if. You can be sure that he or she, who turns a sentence thusly, is careless in speech and oblivious of the rights of words. It is impossible to wonder if. You simply are not thinking, nor even trying to think. I wonder if it will be nice tomorrow. You could hardly find a worse sentence. Never wonder if. Always wonder at. The dawn of one more day, wet or fine, is wonderful. If it be fine, wonder at the sunshine. If it be wet, at the rain, each drop a miracle. Wonder if is not worth saying, not worth answering. How cold it is, I wonder if it is going to snow. If guinea pigs could talk, that might be the level of their conversation. Avoid with equal care the phrase, the wonder is. Grandpa, for example, slips on the stairs and hurts himself. The wonder is that he did not hurt himself more. It is not. The wonder is that Grandpa did hurt himself. All pain is infinitely wonderful, but there is no wonder in the measured severity of this or that accident. It was not possible that Grandpa should hurt himself more. Given his weight, the velocity of his descent, the density of the stairs, and the state of his tissues, you might calculate the harm done working out each bruise by algebra on a blackboard. To wonder that he did not hurt himself more is like wondering that two and two do not make five. Grandpa's injury was his share of the universe at the moment of his accident. It was bound, therefore, to be exactly what it was. Otherwise, not he, but the universe would have been confounded.
The universe, in accordance with its eternal principles, upset Grandpa. If he had hurt himself more, ever so little more, he would have upset the universe. Wonder yourself silly, not over the amount, but over the fact of his pain. Wonder at what did happen, not at what might have happened, if it could have happened. Now that we are past wonder if and the wonder is, we come to wonder when and wonder where. Say these phrases to yourself slowly, with your eyes shut, and watch the images that rise in your mind. How quick they take shape and fight for precedence. Ghosts of packages that ought to have reached you the day before yesterday. Ghosts of remotes that ought to have been on the nightstand beset you. And you are haunted by dismal memories of people who were late and of belongings that were lost. You are waiting for a friend and the cars go up and down the street, but none of them stops where you are at the window. You are hunting for your gloves, sure that you put them there where they are not. Minute by minute, as you wait, as you hunt, the clock tells you that so much more of your life has fled. Oh, the misery of it, that your life should be ebbing away while you are looking for a pair of old gloves. I wonder when he will come, you say, or I wonder where they are. And life echoes back that your friend will come when he will come, and that your gloves are where they are. Avoid by these two instances the fault of wondering when and where. Make up your mind that you will only wonder at. That was the advice which Aristotle was about to give you when I interrupted him. Wonder, he says, is the beginning, the ruling principle of the love of wisdom. That which makes us human, our birthright, our privilege, is the sense of surprise that we are in the world. To think, we must be challenged, entrapped, stung into thought by all that we have and are. Every inch and every moment of this world, all its aspects and performances, and every act of our senses, invite us to look into their significance, calling us, if not to a credo, yet to an admirer. All facts, from stars to blades of grass, from the death of Caesar to the death of a mouse, are for wonder and thereby for thought. And the only way toward wisdom is that which begins at the gate of surprise and goes all along the dim groves of bewilderment. Into the kingdom of science, as into the kingdom of heaven, we cannot enter but as little children. To have the run of both kingdoms, to know them well enough to be sure that they are not two but one, is wisdom and the entry into them requires the child's mind, its love of mystery, its readiness to be puzzled, its open-eyed astonishment. Watch how a baby takes notice, its own fingers and toes and every sound and color bring it to attention. What is this? What is that? There was something. There is something else. 
two somethings and here a third. What a world, the wonder of it, that here are fingers apart from toes. And here is mother's breast, which is neither daddy's face nor grandma's apron. Thus in a blind animal fashion come the first beginnings of our taking notice, taking thought. So with us, wonder must precede reason, or we shall be, to the end of our lives, not wise, but fools. Fools are those who take as their motto, nil admirari, they do not wonder at anything. They chose this motto because they say in their hearts that there is no divine, no sublime, nothing to wonder at. But we have as our motto, semper admirari, let us see what comes of wonder. However, we must begin at the very beginning and go the way of nature. Nature never preaches to us, it is we who preach to her nor does she tell us to look through nature up to nature's God. It is not so easy to look through nature. Nor does she bid us to find her perfect, for in nature fair is foul, and foul is fair, and if she were perfect, she would not be here. One commandment and no more she gives us, that we read her name wonderful. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Not everything is wonderful or beautiful. There are ugly things in the world. Well, let us first agree that the beauty of things is not impaired by the ugliness of things. You cannot play off one against the other. You cannot call fogs as witnesses that the evidence of sunny days is not to be believed. Foul weather, horrid smells, brutal discords and violence, no more discredit the world's beauty than a fake dollar debases the good bills in your pocket. You thought that you had a dollar more than you had. Well, you were wrong, but the other bills are none the worse for that. Further, let us be agreed that an ugly thing may be perfect for its use and place in the world. Take for example an ugly teapot. It keeps its ill looks to itself and it makes and pours out the tea in a manner which leaves nothing to be desired. What more could the added gift of beauty do for this teapot? Neither the tea nor the pot would be the better for it. The question is, should we? I am sure that we should not, and I would sooner be out of this world than at the mercy of the charms of every passing teapot. Once all teapots were made beautiful, Give me a grave. The monotony of unrelieved delight, the loss of contrast and of rarity, would make this world no place for a soul full of wonder. Bury me deep, if you please, out of the reach of omnipresent art. I believe in the beauty of the world, and that it is directly adjusted and addressed to me, that it cannot be explained by the jargon of psychology that it is not touched by the ugliness of the world, and that things intended only to be useful may be, and are, perfectly perfect without it. Indeed, all the best beauty in the world is practically useless, and this uselessness tends to prove its divinity, if that plain fact demands any proof. 
we have an example of how things useless may yet be divine. This example is pure mathematics, which is eternal in the heavens, not in time or in space, but one and the same alike in God and man. So is applied mathematics. All arithmetic, all sums, accounts, and measurements are heaven on earth, and the angels, when they want a multiplication table, use ours. But while applied mathematics is useful, pure mathematics is useless. That is the way of it, to be of no use to anybody. And pure beauty, like pure mathematics, is useless. And just like it, is none the worse for that. Furthermore, as all mathematics are the same mathematics, whether they be pure, as in a professor's head, or applied, as in an accountant's books, so all beauty is the same, whether it be pure, as in a sunset, or applied, as in the carving of a wooden gate. Nothing is more impossible than to seek to explain beauty in terms of utility. To feel the wonder of beauty, we must enjoy the very elements of beauty. There is no call for us to be musical or artistic, a single note on a violin, a single square inch of a soap bubble, are beautiful. It happens to all of us, now and again, to be reminded that every atom of beauty is completely beautiful. Therefore stick to the simplest manifestations of beauty. Give to any scrap of color or of sound all that you have to give. Let every meanest accident of beauty exercise and strengthen your power of wondering. The plain truth is that the odds and ends of beauty are immeasurably beautiful. The wonder of their beauty is inexhaustible and may rightly be called divine. And if you cannot be amazed at the pearl inside an oyster shell, I do not care to hear what you think of French cathedrals. If education is to help us, let us begin at the right end. Let us institute for schools and colleges classes in wonder. A single note of music, a single patch of color, shall suffice for an hour's lesson. If the class find it dull, so are other lessons frequently dull. If students rebel, as students will, and say it is a waste of time to look for an hour at the inside of an oyster shell, so what? I have heard lectures on Greek philosophy, Gothic architecture, and the Second World War called a waste of time. It proves nothing to call a lesson dull. When these first classes have been mastered, thoroughly mastered and learned by heart, the wonder of the beauty of an oyster shell at last perceived, then, and only then, may students proceed to the beauty of the monarch butterfly and the wonderful wide world beyond. The Inspirational Living Podcast is a production of The Living Hour. For free transcripts of our podcast, please go to livinghour.org. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider becoming a patron. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month which will ensure that we can continue our podcast for years to come. 
To become a patron, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Simply do a quick search for the Inspirational Living Podcast at patreon.com to find our Patreon page and learn more, including the free gifts we offer to every patron. Subscribe to our free podcast today at the iTunes Store, or at Google Play, or at Stitcher.com. Thank you for listening. We look forward to being with you next time.